Good evening. Good to be with you here tonight. As Mr. Ocker said, my topic for tonight is avoiding modern idolatry. And as I thought about this subject, um, and I looked at what the Bible has to say, I'm not sure that uh, we're in any different situation today than we than we were than people were many years ago in Bible times. I don't think a lot has changed. Uh, men's hearts are still the same. And so while circumstances have changed, technology has changed, we're still the same. And I thought about idolatry. Where should I go with this subject? And I began to study and saw that it is a vast subject. It, the Bible treats it quite a lot. Most times when we think about idolatry, we would first off, we would go to Exodus chapter 20. And I'm going to be going through a few scriptures tonight, so if you wish to turn to them, that's fine. If not, I'll read them for you. But in Exodus chapter 20, we get um, God saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Here we have God telling his people, I don't want any other gods before me. No bowing down and no worshiping images, things that you have made. Just shortly after this, in Exodus chapter 32, we have... The story of the golden calf. Perhaps well, it is a famous story about idolatry in scripture. Just soon after they received the Ten Commandments and God told them not to do this, they did it. Moses is up on the mountain and the people said, make us a God. And Aaron takes all of their golden earrings puts them in the fire, forms a, a calf, a molten calf, and he says, here's your gods. Here's your gods. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down for thy people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt. For the people which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed there unto and said, 
These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. So we see that idolatry, putting something before God, God gets angry about that. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, it says, For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Jealous, meaning impassioned, or, or filled with, or showing great emotion. Very interesting. Angry. Jealous. How were the kings, if we would look at later on in Israel's history when they had a king, how were they judged to be good or bad? Wasn't it whether they worshipped God or whether they worshipped idols? In 2 Kings chapter 16, there was a fairly significant king. It was Ahab's father. His name was Omri, and he was uh, a fairly uh, good ruler if, if um, you look into history, but the Bible doesn't say very much about him, and... It just tells us that he was an idol worshiper and he did things uh, to drag his people down into idol worship. 1 Kings 16, 26, it says that Omri walked in all, in, in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made, he was the one that made the golden calves and I believe Dan and, and Beersheba perhaps, but he would have been an idol worshiper. And it says, he walked in all those the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin, wherewith he made Israel to sin, to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger with their vanities. And the same thing was said about Ahab uh, in the same chapter, Omri's son Ahab, a wicked king. And it says that he made a grove or a place to worship idols, and he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. And he did it more than all the kings that were before him. Then if we, if we uh, would look at a king like Hezekiah, who, who uh, followed the Lord uh, pretty much. I mean, of course, he made some mistakes in his life too, but it tells us that... <coughs> that he was a good king, and that he worshipped the Lord. So I'm just trying to think about idolatry and what it is and what, what, what God thinks about it, how God responds to it. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. Neither my praise to graven images. 
So we see that God's response to people putting something or someone ahead of him is anger and jealousy. He's not going to share his glory. Now, when you think about idolatry and you think about God's response and God being angry and God being jealous, does it ever cross your mind? Well, is God egotistical? Is he like a, a spoiled child who pouts and gets out of sorts if he doesn't receive all the attention he wants? Is that what's up with God? You know, that's the way much of our world looks at God. He's narcissistic. It's all about him. Well, let's examine that thought a little bit. Thinking about jealousy and anger. You know, if we think of somebody being angry, we think, we think of someone out of control, rage and violence, unrestrained anger, and we think of it in a, in a bad way. And jealousy, we would think much the same. Jealous would be to be envious of someone who has something that, that we don't have, and, and we desperately want what they have. And we're covetous and grumpy because we can't have what somebody else has. Is that how we think about God? Becky Pippert wrote a book, and this is what she says about anger. God, about God and, and anger. We tend to be taken aback by the thought that God could be angry. We take pride in our tolerance of the excesses of others. So what's God's problem? But love detests what destroys the beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the inside of the human race that he loves with his whole being. So you see what she's saying? When we see someone we love being destroyed by something, it makes us angry. And God is angry because the idol worshiper is destroying himself. He's making the wrong choice. God is jealous because he wants us to have the best. He wants us to love him. And that is what is best for us. When God says, don't worship another God, it's because nothing can compare to him. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto him? The workman 
melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot, and he seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants there are, thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, that, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in, that bringeth the princes to nothing, he maketh the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they shall not be planted. Yea, they shall not be sown. Yea, their stock shall not take root in the earth. And he shall also blow upon them, and they shall wither, and the whirlwind shall take them away as stubble. To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Why? Does God hate idolatry? Why should we not have any images? It's because nothing can compare to God. He has no equal. In Psalm 115, it talks about idols, and it tells us that I believe this is the passage that says that they have eyes and they can't see. They have noses, but they can't smell. It says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throats. They that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. Jeremiah chapter 10 talks about the person that cuts down a tree and carves an image. And God sees this and he is angry. Nothing can compare to him. And he is angry because of the cancer of idolatry that is eating out at his beloved people. So, we understand that idolatry makes God angry and it makes him jealous. And that, to me, is a comfort to know that God cares about me enough to be angry if I'm making the wrong decision. A person may say, well, that's all fine and good, but God doesn't need to tell me what to do. He has no right to tell me what to do. But let's look what scripture says about that. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, it's an important verse. Uh, the Jews use it a lot. And it is used several times in scripture. In fact, Jesus talked about it. 
But Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And it talks about how that you should be aware of them all the time and teach them to your children. What, what does this mean in relation to idolatry? One God, the only God. Now suppose we were polytheistic or we believed in many gods. When we wanted to go on a trip, we would pray perhaps to the God of the air if we're going to fly someplace. We'd pray to the God of the air. If we go in the water, we'd pray to the God of the water. If we're in business, we'd pray to the God of business. And so forth. We would pray to the God of whatever we were doing. But the Bible tells us that there's only one God. And so what does that mean for our worship? It means that there's only one place for it. There's only one place for our worship. And that is to the true God. He deserves all our devotion. The Bible tells us that He's the creator and the sustainer of the world that we live in. Genesis, the account of the creation. And in, in Colossians 1.17, it tells us that by him all things consist. And so he is the creator and the sustainer of our world. The Bible tells us that he designed me and he designed you. In Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. In Psalm 139.13, for you did form my inward parts, you did knit me together in my mother's womb. God knew you before you were born. He knew your, what your DNA was going to be. He knew you as a person. In Daniel chapter 5, King Belshazzar was having a party and he used the vessels from the temple and he had an idolatrous party. And of course, the handwriting came on the wall and this is one of the things that was said to him. Daniel 5.23 but, but you have lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee and thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines have drunk wine in them and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold of brass, iron, wood and stone which see not nor hear nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. What does he say? You worshipped all of these idols, and God is the one who holds your breath in his hand. So God is one God. He is the creator and the sustainer. He designed you and I. He knows everything about us. 
And not only that, it tells us, the Bible tells us that he holds every breath that you take in his hand. And you're alive because God gives you breath each day. Now can you see the claim that God has on you? The claim that he has on your worship. Well, that seems like the decision should be easy, shouldn't it? That we should all want to serve and love and trust God, right? It should be. But what, what's the problem? Well, I looked up uh, the needs of a human, okay? You can just Google it. There's all kinds of lists out there. So I found one that said, the eight needs that all humans have. Did you know that you're needy? You are. You're pretty needy. I'm pretty needy. And these are the eight things, and I'm sure lists might vary a little bit, but a lot of them come down to the same thing. It tells us that the eight needs that humans have, number one, survival. We would like to have a long and healthy life. Number two, we would like protection, safety, care and protection for ourselves and our loved ones. Number three, freedom. We would like freedom from danger and fear and pain. Number four, we would like comfort. Comfortable living conditions. Number five, we would like pleasure. To enjoy food and beverages and experiences. Number six, relationships. We would like companionship and compatibility. Number seven, success. To be superior, winning, keeping up with the Joneses. This is a need that all humans have. And number eight, likability, social approval, being part of the in crowd. You see all, all the needs that are calling out from inside of us, and how are we going to fill those needs? You know, we are empty, and we're searching, and our hearts become divided, and we look to things to fill the emptiness in our lives. And they become idols, the things that we're searching for. John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts make idols. They automatically make idols. Our flesh and our mind and our heart make idols. In fact, a lot of the Old Testament is about God trying to win the hearts of his people. They're looking to other things, trying to fill the needs in, in their life. And God is trying to win them back. There's two main themes that come up in Scripture as it talks about God trying to win the hearts of his people. And the first one is marriage. You know, marriage is the most sacred relationship between humans and it requires exclusive love and devotion 
And God, time and time again in Scripture, says that you are like a spouse that has left. You picked up and you broke the love. You broke the trust and you walked out. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible that's pretty much devoted to that, and that's the book of Hosea. And God says in the beginning of that book, He says in Hosea 1 2, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife. Of whoredoms and the children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. And we know that Hosea married a woman who was unfaithful to him, and and, and God said, This is a picture. This is a picture of, of people who have followed idolatry, have gone their own way. They have broken the relationship of love. And so we see that God uses the picture of a broken marriage when he talks about idolatry. The second thing, the second picture that we see various times is king. And when we think about a king, we think about absolute power. A king has absolute power and his subjects have absolute trust and confidence in his provision and protection. And the place that, one of the places that we see that is in 1 Samuel when Israel begs for a king. And God says, they didn't reject you, Samuel, but they have rejected me. In Samuel 8, 7 and 8, uh, let's see, that's 1 Samuel. I'm in 2 Samuel. 1 Samuel 8. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. So we see the picture of a king whose subjects do not want to obey him. They don't want to accept his provision and protection. They have no trust and no confidence in their king. So those are the two pictures that God gives us in the Old Testament of idolatry, putting something in the place of God. When we do that, it's like being an unfaithful spouse, breaking trust, throwing away the love. It's like being the subject of a good and kind king and refusing to appreciate the provision and protection of the king and rebelling against him. These are the pictures that we get of idolatry. Well, 
let me get a little bit more practical and think about idolatry. And, and I'm not going to name things for, that may be idols to you. That's, that's something that you have to work through in your own life. But I would like to read to you from 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Very interesting. Love not or do not love. You know, our world says love is always good. That's what our world says. Love is always good. As long as I love, it's okay. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that there's some love that is out of bounds. There is some love that is out of bounds. And it says, do not love the world. And it defines the world in verse, in the later verse there where it says, the lust of the flesh, which the Amplified Bible says, puts it this way. The lust of the flesh is craving for sensual gratification. The lust of the eyes is greedy longings of the mind. And the pride of life is assurance in one's own resources or the stability of earthly things. Don't love the world. Don't love the things that come from the flesh. That would be to gratify the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the greedy longings that we all have, wanting and wanting and never satisfied. And of course, the pride of life or the assurance of, of your own ability to take care of yourself and sure that you have the resources to, to do that and that your life is stable and you have everything under control. Don't love the world. Why? Is it because God's a killjoy? He doesn't want you to have something? There's something good here and I don't want you to have it. Is that what God is saying? No. No. Look what it says in verse 17. And the world passeth away. And what else passes away? All the lusts thereof. All those things that we want so badly and we're searching for to fill our emptiness. It says the world is going to pass away and all those lusts, all the things that you wanted, you're no longer going to want. You know, I worked for a man some years ago and he had a 10-acre property and he had it well-maintained and it was a nice brick house and there was a motorhome outside, and he had some other things. And he said to me, I worked for many years to get this and to pay it off. 
And now I'm a 90-year-old man or an 89-year-old man, whatever he was. He was an old man, and he said, I don't want it anymore. I got to get rid of it. I don't want it. I can't use this stuff anymore. You know what? The things that we lust after, all those things that we want, one day it is going to pass away. It's going to turn out to be not what we thought it was going to be. Did you ever hear of the law of diminishing returns? So if I get up in the morning and I drink a cup of coffee, I like that. If I drink two, not as quite as good as the first one, but I still like it. If I drink three or four or five, they all go downhill. And that's just a small example of how it is in life. When we experience something again and again and again, it's less rewarding and it, and it constantly goes, the enjoyment goes down. And you know that's how this life is? The things that we have in this life they go downhill. And so why is idolatry so terrible and why does God tell us not to do it? Because if we place our love and trust and obedience in anything other than God, it will fail. If it doesn't fail in this life, it's going to fail in the next. Because it tells us that only the person that loves God and does the will of God abides forever. Everything else is going to perish. Mr. Ocker read from Matthew chapter 6. That was a great passage to read on idolatry. I was going to read that too, but I'm not going to. I'm running out of time anyway. But treasures. And he's... He said it well. But the question that I want to ask about that passage of scripture is, does God tell us that we can't have treasures? Once again, I want to say, is God a killjoy? Does God say we can't have treasures? Not at all. Not at all. But he wants you to have the right kind of treasures. He wants you to have treasures that are permanent, indestructible treasures, shiny treasures, treasures that cannot be stolen. You see the difference? It's a change of attitude. God doesn't want us to have idols to fill ourselves up. He wants us to have treasures that are based in heaven, in his work. And those are going to be treasures that last this world's treasures will always fail us. You know, the, the only thing that I could really find in the New Testament that idolatry is really closely associated with is greed. In both Colossians and Ephesians, it says covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is wanting what you don't have. It's greediness. So the New Testament associates always wanting another treasure in this life. Greediness is idolatry. In our world of acquiring possessions or, or, or desiring to acquire them, it's good for us to hear that. Where 
are my treasures at? In closing, I want to read one more passage of scripture. And here is, here is the key, the key to not falling into idolatry, okay? Here's the key, I think. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. This is talking, God is talking and he says that when you get a king, when you ask for a king, these are, the, these are the rules for a king. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, and to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. That his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. What are the instructions to a king? So that your heart is faithful to God. <coughs> Number one, don't multiply horses. In those days, horses were a military commodity. And so today we would say security in our lives that would relate to security. Don't multiply horses. Don't think that you can get security in this life, whether it's a big home or money or retirement funds or whatever it is. Don't find your security in that. Find it in the Lord. Number two, don't multiply wives. Now, perhaps this has something to do with sexuality, but more likely, more likely, not multiplying wives. You see, when a king came to the throne, he would go to the neighboring country and marry a daughter of that king over there, and that way he's safe. That king's not going to attack his own daughter, and neither would he attack his father-in-law. And so it was, a, it was an alliance with neighboring nations. And what happened was, those wives were heathen wives, and this happened to Solomon. Married many, many women, and they 
were idolatrous, women who worshipped idols, didn't worship God, and it led Solomon away from, from loving God the way he should have. And so what alliances do we make? What compromises do we make in our love for God, in our friendships, in our business connections, and in other ways? What kind of alliances do you have that is compromising your love for God? Then it says, don't multiply silver and gold. And we already talked about the treasures in Matthew chapter 6. Our treasures need to be the treasures that God wants us to have. And if we have money, it's to be used for him. But here is the thing I really want to get to. And it tells us that when the king comes to his throne... He should go to the Levites and the priests and he should get a copy of the law. I guess the first five books of the Bible. Maybe it wasn't all of that. I don't know. But he says, listen, you go to the priests and the Levites and you get a copy of the law. And you copy it out by hand. That was the only way to get a Bible back in those days. They copied everything by hand. And the first thing the king was to do when he came to his throne was to copy God's word. And it says that you're going to read it. It's going to be with you, it says. And then he says, you're going to read it every day of your life. And this is going to keep your heart from being lifted up above your brethren. It's going to keep you close to the Lord. Now you're going to fear God. So what's the, what is the, what's the ticket to not becoming an idolater? It's being close to God. It's reading his word. And it's learning to love him. You know, Thomas Chalmers wrote a book long ago. He was a Scottish theologian. And the title of the book was this. The expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. Do you understand what, he, what an expulsive power is? An expulsive, expulsive power is something that is going to cast something else out going to cast something else out and when we love God what's going to get cast out of our lives when we find a new affection for God and what he has done for us and who he is and his claim on our life there's some things that are going to be expelled from our life and we're not going to have trouble with idolatry because we have learned to love God well do you have a love for God that expels all the idols in your life. Hey, we live in a world that it's easy to get caught up in. And we need this. We need this. We need to stay close to the Lord. Remember the king. Read God's word every day. Learn to love him. And the things that are evil are going to be expelled from your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love to us. Thank you that you care enough about us, that you are angry and you are jealous when we walk away from you and give our affection and love to other things. Lord, help us to stay close to you by reading your word and, and defining the, our relationship with you to be wonderful so that the things of this earth will be strangely dim and that we will love you more. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had together tonight. Bless these people. Help us to be faithful, to walk with you in the days ahead. In Jesus' name.